Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 6. That's where we are today in a series called Turning Points, Pivotal Moments in the Book of Acts. We're doing, what we're doing is just kind of jumping from moment to moment all throughout the Book of Acts and these pivotal times that shape the way that the early church was able to represent Jesus. And not only is it biblical history, it is our history as well as we follow Jesus as Savior and are part of the continuing work that has started here in the first century. Today in Acts chapter 6, and here's the key concept for today, we must organize to meet the needs. Here we see the beginnings of church organization, if you will, the very first start of mobilizing people to meet needs in an organized way. But the occasion for this organization came in the midst of church conflict. And church conflict is always painful. It's, it just hurts our hearts to hear about fellowships of faith that are in conflict with one another. R. Kent Hughes tells the true story of a, a church in Dallas. Now, the church split, and it was, it was a bitter feud with hard feelings on either side of, of these, this one group that grew into two groups antagonistic towards one another. And it was it's so bitter that they actually brought it to the courts. The two uh, groups were suing one another for ownership of the property of the church building. And so eventually, as that worked through the courts, the leaders had to give testimony about how this conflict started, what it was all about. And what came to the surface was, it, it was at all places, it was at a fellowship dinner that the conflict started. And the conflict was over the fact that an elder seated at the table was served a smaller piece of ham than a child who was seated next to him. And that, his complaint about that, called, caused a cascade of conflict, and uh, this was the beginning of a, of a conflict that tore that church apart and ruined the reputation of that church and ministry because that fact, the case of the small piece of ham, made the newspapers. And that's that church's legacy in Dallas. What a tragedy. Church conflict. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we see a dedicated, growing body of believers. But they have faced headwinds of difficulty. In Acts chapter 4, they faced persecution from the authorities. In Acts chapter 5, they dealt with corruption from within and Ananias and Sapphira. But by Acts chapter 6, we start with this sentence. It says, the number of disciples was increasing. They were working side by side. They were weathering those storms. They were pushing forward in unity. And it was effective. People were coming to Christ. People were, were getting saved and the church was growing. And Satan attacks the unity that is propelling that growth and, and sharing and giving them their positive testimony. He attacks them along the lines of culture and background. We'll see that in a moment. See, the first issue that we deal with in chapter 6 of the book of Acts is the issue of division. Look at with, with me, verse 1, chapter 6, it says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You see, Satan wants to sow the seeds of discord if he can. 
He will always try to do it. And here in the first century, there was an open opportunity for discord, and the opportunity was embedded in the culture, not the church. It was what was going on outside the church, this clash between Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. Let me explain that. The Grecian Jews were Jews who had lived and had been educated in the greater portions of the empire that were dominated by the Greek culture. Now they had moved back to Jerusalem. This is taking place in Jerusalem. But they primarily speak Greek. They have been educated in Greek ways. They, they think like, a, like a, a Greek, a person. But they came back to a culture dominated by the Hebraic Jews, the Jews who had lived only in the Holy Land, who spoke Aramaic and, and Hebrew primarily. They were not Greek in their culture and in their thought. They thought like Hebrew thinkers. And the, the tension between these two groups was not a church issue to start with. It was a cultural issue to start with. Out in the greater culture, these groups were at odds with one another. But that tension was brought into the church as people from these two cultural backgrounds came to Christ as personal Savior. Part of the fellowship looked around to the other part, and they say, these people don't, don't talk like me. These people don't act like me. These people don't think like me. And we know that we're called to be one fellowship, but that is tough. And they experience problems here in Acts 6. You see, the Bible shows us real life, and real life has, has rough edges. The church of Jesus Christ never was a collection of perfect people. It never was a group that, you know, never made mistakes, never had issues. And some of those mistakes caused fault, caused fault lines between uh, bodies of believers. Some of those fault lines were wide. Some of them were cultural issues. Some of them were personal issues. And that still continues today. That's why we have to understand, we have to read, we need to be aware. Because if, if Satan can, he will divide us, no matter how he can. Charles Colson writes another tragic story that comes from a church in the suburbs of Boston. The church was at odds, but this time it wasn't a big philosophical cultural thing. It was a personal thing. One of the deacons had something, some, something that he was mad about against the pastor. And one particular Sunday, the pastor neglected to give an announcement that that deacon wanted made. And he became so incensed that for, for whatever reason, he thought purposefully the announcement was left out, that he stormed the platform in a loud voice in the middle of the service, demanded an explanation for why his announcement wasn't made. The organist hearing this started playing the organ nice and loud to cover up the yelling. Well, soon it was over and the deacon went down, but as he went down, his, his leg got caught up in the mic cord and he tripped he thought the pastor had shoved him from behind. So he got up and he ran back onto the platform and slugged the pastor in the face. The choir jumped into action protecting the pastor. Thank you, choir, very much for that. They protected the pastor. People from the congregation came up. Pretty soon there was a brawl right here in front of the, in front of the pulpit, and the organist is playing louder and louder and louder, trying to cover it all up. Meanwhile, no one is paying attention to the words of the Apostle Paul. When he writes in Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
You see, sometimes the unity of spirit is brought through cultural fault lines, and sometimes it's just private pet peeves. But whatever it is, keeping unity takes effort. Paul knows that. Satan will seek to import the tensions around us into the church. Bigotry between races, bigotry between backgrounds, prejudice, we're dealing with that right now in our country, in our nation. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be the model of what it looks like to be in unity together from different backgrounds, different situations, different cultures, but one because we share the most bonding factor of all, what? The Holy Spirit in our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why here at Quell, we remind ourselves and we work hard to remember that we are to be a tapestry of all kinds of backgrounds woven together in the fabric of faith. Now, in the Jerusalem church, these were the issues. Grecian Jews, Hebraic Jews, different cultures, different groups, and even though they now are worshiping Jesus Christ as Savior, and the way that the food distribution was being handles, handled was an issue. It says, the Grecian Jews among them complained. That could be said murmured against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked. And that word could be translated neglected. It started as a murmur. It started as kind of an in-group kind of conversation. You know, our, our widows aren't getting the food. Our widows are not, they're not paying attention to them. And that blew up into the greater part of the fellowship as it, as it was getting noticed, and soon there was a rift between these two groups. This is a potentially huge issue. I mean, if Satan can divide the church over these cultural issues right away, the witness of the gospel, which needs to go out into the larger culture of the empire, will be slowed and be made ineffective. Division, right there, right in the beginning. But there's a second issue, and the second issue is what I call distraction. Because there's going to be a problem for the church to understand, well, how do we handle this? Once we know there's an issue, what's the right response? Let's read on. Start in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You can almost imagine the initial conversations. Once the problem was identified, once the issue was obvious, you can imagine the conversation that said, well, you know, if the apostles would serve the food to the Grecian uh, widows, it would be obvious that we value them. If the apostles would serve the food and be the ones to do that, it would be a strong statement of our unity. It would demonstrate how much we care. And yes, it would solve the problem, but it would create a new problem. And the new problem was the distraction of those leaders who had a lane that they had to stay in. You see, if Satan can take the apostles and get them to get their eyes off of preaching and teaching and eyes off of the ministry of prayer, which is their design and their calling, and if he can get them to do those things which do not represent their design, do not represent their calling, just to kind of be busy, not to do what the leaders need to do, once again, the ministry of the church will slow down to a crawl. 
They needed to be able to do what only they could do. And they were wise enough to understand two things. One, organization is called for. And two, mobilization of volunteers is part of the organization. Right in the beginning of the church we see that. And so the solution was to mobilize others, to mobilize those who would have the design to care in this particular way. We look back at Acts chapter 6 and these caregiving people who are mobilized, we now call them the first deacons, caregivers in the church. And the apostles are not saying, no, that's beneath us. They're not saying that's not important. They're not saying they don't care about that. But they say we have to stay in our lane that God has called us to do, and we trust God that He has others who will meet, these need, meet this need. And so that's what they did. And they looked for qualified men. Issues, they had, to, they had to be qualified for the issues on the inside whose reputation was high. And look at verse 5. We'll read on to the solution here. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A group of men who were designed and gifted and mobilized to meet the need. Where Satan would sow seeds of division among the church out of humility and out of love, they wove a tapestry of unity, and they were able to minister to one another. And the results were... The apostles were able to focus on that which they were uniquely called to do. The church stayed together. The needs of the widows were met, and the church was able to grow. But you see that little postscript in the end of verse 7? And there were priests who were so attracted to the fact that the church was solving the problem that the culture couldn't solve, that they too wanted in on what they had in here in the church, Jesus Christ. They saw that they weren't able to deal with people like this. They weren't able to see this humility and this love and this togetherness out in the culture, but they saw it in the church, and that was an attractive force, just as Jesus said it would be. And so the priests were, were coming to Christ. I love that little postscript. See, for me, the issue is this. Both for in an individual and a church fellowship, the issue is design versus default. That's an organizational issue, and it's a personal issue for each one. Every believer has a design. We call it here at Quail the divine design that makes you you, and every church family has one as well. Now, I need to understand the way that God has made me. I need to understand that divine design. And it's always on a personal level, the blend of your personality and your passions and your spiritual gifts. It, it's the, it includes your availability and your spiritual growth and your maturity, your experiences, the things that you've gone through. All of that comes together by the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of a moving thing. We, don't, we, we grow in Christ, so sometimes we change. We maybe have a different emphasis in our design. But that design gives a believer a mandate to say, this is what God has designed me to do. And that mandate, when we say yes to that mandate, it is God's blessing because what we, when we do that, we have that joy of, ah, I was meant to do this. This gives me joy. I, I know that I'm in the right place at the right time. God has called me to do this. That's design. That's living by design. 
Default, on the other hand, is just when you wander through life, when you really don't have any purpose. There's no sense of what you're meant to do. Uh, there's nothing like that. People who live by default, they just get easily caught up in all kinds of things because there's no reason to say no to anything because I don't have a yes that I'm saying yes to in my life. And so I'm busy, but I'm busy in a very disjointed way. I'm busy in an ad hoc kind of way, not really going anyplace. Default versus design. I remember once I, I was in a home. This was the illustration in my mind. I was in a home. It was built by default. This house was once a very small house. It was a one-story ranch, very, very small house with a back deck. And as the family grew, they decided to enclose the back deck, make a room out of it, and then build another deck. And then the family continued to grow. They enclosed that deck, and they made another deck. Family continued to grow. They enclosed that deck. They made another deck. And by the time I visited this family in the house, as you exited the main original house, you walked into this hodgepodge of rooms that you had to walk through all the other rooms to get to the room you wanted to get to because they never added any hallways. They just kind of stuck on rooms. Now, that's an example of, you know, building by default and not design. On the other hand, when you have a design, you have an end in mind. You see what we want this to look like. People who live according to God's design can identify a sense of purpose, can identify, well, I care about this. This is my passion. And your design is built into you if you're a follower of God. God Himself has built it in your life, and that inner world is to drive your outer world. And the apostles knew that. So getting back to our story here, the apostles could say no to being the ones who delivered the food to the Grecian widows. Not because that wasn't important or it didn't matter, but because they had a greater yes. This is the lane God has called me to. i got to stay in this lane. And I trust God that there are others who will adopt that ministry that He has called and He has crafted and designed to do that good work. And so we're going to look for them and we're going to get organized. There's some principles here that I want to lift out of the first century and bring to our century that we need to pay attention to. And principle number one is this. We have to value unity as we meet the needs. These were legitimate needs. The apostles did not deny the problem. They admitted the mistake. This was an issue. Nothing is served by sweeping things under the rug and pretending that there's no problems. There was a problem. But instead of saying, okay, we're going to have to kind of just run around to solve this really quickly, no, they, they kind of thought it through and said, we're going to solve this together. We're going to solve this in unity. And, and, and the point that we might miss here is because, because we're distant from this history is that every one of the men who were mobilized into the ministry towards the Grecian Jews were Greek. They all have Greek names. In other words, they were part of the solution for the problem that they felt particularly. The group that was complaining was recruited to be part of the solution. I think that's a vital insight. Because if you're pointing out a problem, if you've got an issue in unity, you need to be part of the solution for the issue and work hard to make sure we're able to meet the needs. There's no place, this shows me, for the chronic complainer who's just willing to complain but not willing to do anything about it. 
I'll tell you a personal story here. I once had a lady in the congregation that I was serving. It's not quail. Don't look around. It's nobody you know. For all I know, well, I don't think she's watching, but maybe she's watching. But in any event, uh, this lady came to me. She would come to me on a regular basis and say, you know what you ought to do? You know what the church should do? You know what they should do? And sometimes her ideas were good, and sometimes they were not, but always she had some suggestion. And uh, one time, though, it was a good suggestion. I was like, wow, okay, so do you think you have some friends that you could kind of get together with, and maybe we can work on that? And this was her response. Oh, no, I'm an idea person. Really? Your ideas are only for other people to do, not you to be involved in? She didn't want to be bothered. You know, she wanted to be able to kind of throw the ideas out but not be, be involved in the solution. This is not what we see here in this passage. Those Grecian Jews were mobilized to be a part of the solution for, for the others. Secondly, the principle there is to organize for lasting improvement. It takes organization. It takes a process because this is not just a drive-by, pick-up-the-lunchbox thing for the widows once. This was going to be a long-term, ongoing ministry of food distribution for widows who had no other source of livelihood in this culture. It had to be organized. It had to be prayed through, thought through. It had to be planned. It had to be uh, mobilized through, for volunteers. And all of that is still called for in the church today. We can't get things done if we don't recognize that it takes a process, a system, and volunteer mobilization. And we see it right here in Acts chapter 6. But we also see that when we mobilize people in service, there's no such thing as a minor job. Because you might look at this and say, well, you know, they're, they're serving the meals. But there were high prerequisites for this job. It was an important task. It wasn't a minor thing. It illustrates to me that when we are working together for the purpose of the kingdom of God and the gospel, every task is important. Every task has dignity, and every task has worth. And so, for instance, right now we're, we're talking about the fact that we need more people to step up and be a part of our quail water ministry. Uh, with Living Waters International, we use your recyclables. You know that? Your recyclables. The cans and the water bottles you bring in, crush them up and send them out, and the money is processed, and we send to Living Water International, and th that money is funding water wells worldwide. Now, do you know that since we started that program, there have been 18 water wells dug in villages that did not have drinking water before that? 18 water wells worldwide from your recyclables. Now, you might, you might say at first, well, you know, how important is that? You know, taking the cans and bottles and you know, sorting them and that kind of thing. That's kind of, somebody else can do that. You know, somebody, you know, no skill kind of thing. But it's an important task that God honors and that He's using, and it's making a difference. If you're called to pray, that's an important task that God uses, and it makes a difference. It mobilizes everything we do. Prayer power powers the church. If you're called to work with kids or infants, your influence is going to guide them in the ways of the kingdom. If you're called to lead, your insight, your, your thought process is going to help us think over the next hill. What does the future mean for us, and how will we handle it? All parts and every task is valuable. There's a fourth principle here, and that is the qualifications for all parts of service and every task come on the inside. 
It's not on the outside. Look at verse 3. It says, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, understand, they're going to distribute food to widows. But the qualifications are on the inside, full of the Spirit and wisdom. They didn't say, choose good-looking men among you. They might have been good-looking. I don't know. But that's not the prerequisite. They didn't say, choose those who are wealthy or those who are famous. They didn't say, choose those who are influential. They didn't even say, choose those who have food preparation skills. That would have made sense. Choose chefs among you to distribute the food to the widows. None of that. It was all on the inside. You can learn the skills. You can learn the tasks. But the qualification for service in the kingdom of God that moves the gospel forward, no matter what it is, the qualifications are spiritual and internal. And there's one more lesson for us that we might miss if we were just to walk away from this passage at this point, and that is this. Service for God is rewarded by more opportunity for service. His first two names on this list stand out, don't they? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip. Philip starts out as a deacon, starts out as a caregiver delivering meals to Grecian widows, but he has gifts in his divine design that take him into a new lane because Philip is an evangelist. All throughout the book of Acts, Philip the evangelist shows up again and again. Acts chapter 8, it's Philip who meets the Ethiopian eunuch, brings him to Christ through his ministry of evangelism, baptizes him. Therefore, Philip is responsible for bringing the gospel to the continent of North Africa the first time. Huge implications because he was willing to serve, and once in motion, God gave him greater service. The same is true of of Stephen. Set apart here to do this work, but he is greatly gifted for much more. Look at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. We're going to get back to that next week. But that was not in his original job description. But Stephen had a divine design that was able to get into another lane in another opportunity. And that ministry that Stephen had was reward because of his faithfulness. You see, that's, that's the thing. God rewards faithful service with more service. That's God's economy. I, I, I mention it often, but it's absolutely true. Springs right from the Scriptures. In God's kingdom, idleness is punishment. He gives you opportunities to serve according to your divine design. When you say yes, He gives you more. Why? Because He recognizes the reward of being in that place where it is the mercy of God that's flowing through you. The grace of God is using you, and you feel that joyful Christian life, this is what I'm meant to do. God knows that that is reward, and that's how He patterns the Christian life. Ministers of mercy. That title could apply to us all because there's all kinds of opportunities when you know Him and the Spirit enables us and the opportunities abound around us and there are those that God is asking you to meet. And so my prayer is in this week ahead, have your eyes open. Be recognizing how God will say, this is the opportunity. 
Allow my mercy to flow through you to somebody else and you will be blessed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your mercy flows through us. Forgive us for the times that we'd rather keep our eyes closed and not see the need, but the needs abound, but your mercy is greater. So help us to say yes to the opportunities. Help us to feel your nearness and be the instruments of your glory and grace. Lord, no matter what the news is that comes through our television screens or comes through our radio, we recognize that in you, we have always glad tidings. In you, we always find joy because you are greater than circumstances and greater than what's going on around us. And we rejoice in that truth. Thank you, Lord, that in you, we can find joy. In your name we pray. Amen. And as along those lines, we have a closing song we want you to listen to. Let's do that together. situations and in these nights of a restless remorse when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy to the sad oh your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full being glad oh be ye glad oh be ye glad every death that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the lord From the dungeon a rumor is stirring You have heard it again and again oh, But this time the cell keys are turning And outside there are faces of friends And though your body lay weary from wasting show the sorrow they've had oh the love that your heart is now tasting has opened the gate be ye glad oh be ye glad oh be ye glad every death that you ever had has been paid up grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. So be like lights on the rim of the water, giving hope in a storm sea of night. Be a refuge amidst the 
the slaughterer of these fugitives in their flight. For you are timeless and part of a puzzle. You are winsome and young as lad. And there is no disease or no struggle that can pull you from God. Be ye glad, oh be ye glad, oh be ye glad. Every death that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. Oh be ye glad. you ever had who has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord be ye glad be ye glad be ye glad would you stand for the benediction No matter what the TV reports this week, remember this line. There is no disease or no struggle that can pull you from God. Be ye glad. As we leave today, I want you to hear these words from Galatians chapter 5. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. For the entire law is summed up in this single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Help us, Lord, to be the instruments of your love. Help us to see the needs around us, to meet them in ways that bless others and bring you glory. Help us to carry the confidence that there is gladness of heart for those who know Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So dismiss us with your blessing and enable us to live lives that give you glory. We want to represent you well. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.